Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. This event was recorded on August 19th, 2014 at WOMR Provincetown Outermost Community Radio. Tonight's host is Mimi Gonzalez, and the theme for the evening is Itch. We all know that an itch is a sensation, and a sensation is something that very often you have to simply endure without succumbing to, and it takes superhuman strength sometimes to not scratch that itch, especially depending on where you are and where the itch is. Sometimes you have to become a Buckingham Palace guard and just act as if Nothing is happening in your body that is driving you to madness. Uh, It can be ignored. It has to be endured. Sometimes it's really frustrating, especially if you uh, like to be outdoors. Um, You're here in Provincetown in early June or late May, and uh, a little tiny gnat will decide that there is a particularly salty sweat on your body, somewhere hidden, that only a tiny gnat can get to. But you are talking to people on the street, you are meeting new friends, and you can't scratch that gnat itch. So you become a horse, and you start stamping your leg really hard on the ground, as if uh, stamping your foot is going to distract from where the gnat is itching you. And... uh, I'm hoping that you're following me because I don't want to get more graphic than that. (laughs) Uh, For me, an itch is the sensation that mimics a laugh, sort of. Sometimes a laugh is a sensation that you have to endure and not succumb to. You can, you know, do the Mr. Ed. This is how old that reference is. that you are beating your foot on the ground so you're not laughing or you're pinching your own leg because sometimes you have to say, I'm sorry for laughing. Um, Sometimes a laugh just comes up and you can't wait for it to bubble over. I used to watch Carol Burnett and one of the best parts about Carol Burnett was waiting to see if Harvey Korman (laughs) and Tim Conway would have to make their face look very Bill Cosby and not laugh at something. And you could see the laugh creeping up around them and it would hit like poison ivy. And then the rest of the cast would catch this poison ivy oil of laughter and the rest of the cast would start laughing. And I just prayed for moments like that because they lost it. Um, I learned later when I went to a Groundlings improv class that that is called breaking, and you are not supposed to break, you're supposed to stay in character, but it's always so much more entertaining. And uh, those are laughs that you never say you're sorry for, but sometimes your boss, uh, your stage manager thinks you should say you're sorry. If your stage manager is your, your first stage manager is your parent, like for so many of us, you have to learn to say, I'm sorry for laughing at the wrong moment. Uh, I learned to say I'm sorry for laughing at the wrong moment. Um, One time my mother was yelling at me and in what would become a family trope that uh, I was in trouble for antagonizing my brothers. And I learned this 
five-syllable word, antagonizing, <laughs> at eight years old. So I had that in my vocabulary, antagonizing, antagonizing. And then she would do an impersonation of me. Oh, well, you never said yeah, 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 yeah. And then I would start to laugh. And she would say, what's so funny? Your voice. That was very funny. I'm sorry for laughing. Have you found yourself in that situation where sometimes a laugh just comes up and you have to apologize, but it's annoying you, it's a sensation, you have to address this laugh, and you can't help it, and it just comes and gets you. Well, my brothers and I would watch all kinds of comedy programming with my mom. We would watch Carol Burnett, I'd wait for the those little sneaky laughs, we would watch uh, the early Saturday Night Live, which had Chevy Chase on it. And Chevy Chase uh, did a character of Gerald Ford, which meant nothing to my brothers and me, because we were too young to understand what the president was, but we knew he fell down. And falling was hysterical. So my brothers and I would deliberately fall off the porch, off two steps to make each other laugh. Or we would fall down the stairs, but you know, not the whole length of the stairs. We would just fall down the stairs to crack each other up. And uh, we would generally spend a lot of time with my mother in front of the television. That was a good babysitter and um, mind filler for my mom. And one day, like Chevy Chase, my mom was getting up off the sofa. And she totally wiped out on the floor. And my brothers and I were like, that is so funny. <laughs> Look at you. And my mother was like, my back, my back went out. But we're like nine, so we don't know what my back went out meant. We thought it was like out the front door. So we kept laughing, and she's like, you don't understand. Get me the phone. Call your father. Call for help. And then we realized when she was laying there and couldn't get up, oh, now we have to say we're sorry for laughing because <laughs> mom looks like she's in pain. But sometimes you just have to laugh about it and then sometimes you just have to say you're sorry for laughing. So that's my story about an itch that I scratch, which is <laughs> laughter. Thank you. Our first storyteller for the evening is Carol Steiker. tonight is itch, so of course I'm going to talk about sex. But because, because my kids are in the audience, I'm going to talk about sex that didn't happen. <laughs> you see, I spent the, first, the very first night of my honeymoon, 24 years ago, in Paris, hunched over the toilet bowl, barfing my guts out. And so did my brand new husband because we both got horrible food poisoning at this actually very well-known Paris restaurant. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you after which one it is. Um, so we, we um, went to this restaurant, and the waiters, this was one of those places where they like walk around with platters of escargot in that incredible butter, garlic, and parsley sauce, and the smell, it's like wafting through the air. So we ordered one of those. And it, it tasted delicious, too, at, at, at least the first time we tasted it at dinner. <laughs> Not so much at 3 in the morning. So we spent the entire night and the entire next day taking turns in our tiny little Paris hotel bathroom. That's all the detail I'll give you about that. Every few hours throughout the day, the maids would knock on the door to freshen our room, and we'd send them away. 
And finally, at like six or seven in the evening, I was desperate for a cup of tea, and I asked my new husband if he would go out and find me a cup of tea. Now, this was a harder task than it sounds because our little hotel didn't have a restaurant, didn't have room service, and this is Paris 24 years ago before there was a Starbucks on every corner. And the French had this quaint idea, or they did then, that if you wanted to drink something, you had to sit in a cafe, order it, drink it there, and pay through the nose. So, you know, undeterred, my, my husband, bless his heart, dragged himself out of bed, got dressed, and pale, exhausted, unshaven, went out into the Paris evening to find me tea. Now they say that you will learn everything you need to know about your future spouse on your honeymoon, and this is true, because I learned two things about my husband on this honeymoon. First, he is a rock. He got me tea, he was out for a long time, um, but he came back with the tea, and it was still, you know, even a little bit hot, and I was really grateful for the tea. The other thing I learned about my husband is that he could always make me laugh. Now I know you're thinking food poisoning is not all that funny, and it's, it's not, but to understand the humor in our situation, you have to understand that this honeymoon was a big splurge for us. We did not have a lot of money at the time. We were still in our 20s. We were both recent law grads in public interest jobs. He was a civil rights lawyer. I was a public defender. But we splurged on this honeymoon. This hotel was actually a pretty nice hotel. And we even like used all our frequent flyer points to fly first class over to Paris. And in the first class cabin on the way over, we told the flight attendants that it was our honeymoon. We, to we told everyone it was our honeymoon, but we told the flight attendants it was our honeymoon, and they gave us all these great freebies, including when we left an unopened bottle of champagne. So we got to our pretty nice hotel with this bottle of champagne, and we told them it was our honeymoon, our lune de miel, as they say in French, and we said, we asked them if they would keep this bottle of champagne cold for us for later, and they said, of course they would. So we got changed, and we went out to dinner, and came back, and I, I guess I don't need to tell you we never did have that bottle of champagne. But the point to this story is that the hotel staff knew it was our honeymoon. And so when my newlywed husband emerged from our hotel room after being locked in there for 24 hours <laughs> and emerged pale, exhausted, <laughs> unshaven, and walked through the lobby of our hotel, the entire staff are like going, Way to go, and winking, nodding, high-fiving him. So he comes back with my tea and tells me about his victory lap through our hotel lobby. And I cracked like a little smile. But even we were totally miserable, but even then at the time, we, we said and we knew that we would laugh about this later, which we have many, many times, including tonight. And you may be surprised to learn I'm planning a return trip to Paris for our 25th wedding anniversary next year. Thank you. I think this time we will skip the escargot and go straight to the champagne because life is short, but love is long. Our next storyteller this evening is Caleb. Okay. Um, so every year I go up to New Hampshire with my relatives and we own a house up there. So I was hiking in the woods 
with my cousins and aunts and uncles and my cousin Joey, there was a wasp in his hat and he flicked it out and it landed on my nose and it stung me. And that was like probably the most painful thing I've ever felt in my life. So we rushed back to the house and put ice on it and we, I just sat there on the couch and I felt an itch behind my ear and I just thought it was a mosquito bite because we live in the woods and I'm used to those. So it spread to the back of my neck and I still wasn't worried. But then I looked down at my arm and there were a bunch of bumps there that weren't there before. So my cousins looked it up and they confirmed that I was getting hives. So we got in the car drove up our windy, steep, half-mile driveway. <laughs> and then we got a call from my mom and dad, who were out to dinner in town, and she said we have to go back down the driveway and get some Benadryl. So we did that, and we got some Benadryl, which in the end did absolutely nothing, but <laughs> we went back up, and we went to the hospital. It was like three miles away. And I got into the emergency room and it was probably like the worst experience of my life. It was so itchy. It was like a mosquito bite, but 10 times more itchy. And then like your whole body was covered by them. So I was lying on the bed and my sister and mom were like putting, rubbing ice on me to stop the itch. And the nurse came over and stuck the IV in my um, arm and put the Benadryl in there and that made the itch go away and I fell asleep, slept for an hour. And when I woke up, I pretty much was fine. I didn't have any hives. I, my face was still swelled up, but I didn't know that. I, I just thought I looked totally normal. <laughs> and then I went into the bathroom and I looked into the mirror, mirror and I jumped back because I scared myself. Because <laughs> my face was like puffed up and I had like bags under my eyes that looked gray and my eyes were like this thin because the eyelids were like puffing against them. So after recovering from like my face, I guess. <laughs> um, I went back to the house and my aunt was there and we were supposed to meet her. We have a little like boathouse on the lake and she, without her phone, waited there for an hour for me to come. And she, when we came home, she stormed into the room about to like yell at us for not meeting her. And then I just said, wait, I was in the emergency room. And then she just said, oh. <laughs> and joining us now tonight, Gwen. My mother, may she rest in peace, had an itch. I'd been hearing about it daily uh, since at 82 years old, she had um, massive hemorrhagic stroke, which let, no, she had a massive brain hemorrhage, which led to a stroke, which led to her gradual demise in a nursing home. The itch was in her vagina. And the two aides that we hired to tend to her every need had nothing to offer to make the itch go away. 
So um, the staff of the nursing home finally suggested that she see a gynecologist. They didn't realize that the last time she had done that was when I was born, <laughs> some 50 years earlier. So I have a theory that this itch had started a long time ago, maybe even at birth. You see, my mother was always a fish out of water. She was born in 1927 into an Orthodox Jewish family in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, long before the advent of hipsters and foodies. She married her best friend's br brother. She had two children and divorced when I was eight years old. Aside from my best friend, Nina Shapiro, I was the only girl in the school who came from a broken home. So, but I never really questioned why my parents had gotten divorced because they were so different as people that it was much harder to figure out how they ever got married in the first place. But I knew that my mother was searching for something. She started with psychoanalysis, moved on to astrology and the occult, and ended up following a guru in India and a spiritual path that required abstinence from all carnal pleasures. She took vows to be a vegetarian, abstain from drugs and alcohol, and to lead a clean moral life, which included no sex out of wedlock. Um, so, I never, uh, thanks, son. <laughs> I never really questioned these choices because um, she sort of settled into this meditative life and she seemed to have finally found contentment. And I sort of idealized her quirkiness and eccentricities. So you can imagine my surprise and shock when when I was out celebrating my 40th birthday with my Uncle Walter, he let it slip that the reason why my parents had divorced was that my mother was a lesbian. Mm. When I heard this news, all of the air just left the room. And I stood up, excused myself from the table, and took a long walk around the block. By the time I got back to the restaurant, it all made perfect sense. Her early attempts to appear normal, the failed marriage, her withdrawal from the material world, her isolation and celibacy. Um. <laughs> but this epiphany left me feeling betrayed and sad. At first, I was really angry. How could she not have told me? We were so close and we spoke about everything, but this most intimate and basic part of her identity had been kept secret from me. When I confronted her about it the next day, she reluctantly explained that she thought I knew all along and just had chosen not to talk to her about it. Um, besides, she was deeply ashamed. 
all of the years of psychoanalysis was her attempt to cure this perversion, this itch that was her. And when she realized that she couldn't make it go away, she decided to sort of renounce who she was and lead a life of celibacy. This just made me so very, very sad because I just couldn't help but wonder that if the circumstances had been different, if she hadn't been born into a family of religious fanatics, if she had been exposed to tolerance and acceptance, if only she had been born one generation later, she could have found love with another human being instead of some distant deity in India. Um, moreover, she asked that I not tell anybody this story, in, you know, to respect her, <laughs> <laughs> to respect her privacy, and that leads to like I had an itch also. I had an itch to tell the story, and to tell my mother that I am not ashamed. I am proud of her and love her, and wish so much that she could have done the same. Not yet. <laughs> One more minute. One more minute. Okay. So we ended up going to the gynecologist. <laughs> and it took three of us to get her out of the wheelchair and onto the examining table. And this kindly female doctor asked me if I wanted to peer into my mother's vagina <laughs> to see what was causing the itch. I declined that invitation. <laughs> But I did accept a prescription for some creams that needed to be applied several times a day by her loving aides. It gave me great comfort to think that finally this terrible itch was being soothed. Thank you. Our next storyteller is Jonathan Marks. So I had no idea this was on until 7.32, and only thought I might do this at 7.33. Um, but uh, two summers ago, I developed an itchy rash over my chest here, where my heart's supposed to be. And um, before I tell you more about that, though, I think I need to tell you one or two things about myself. So I am a very anxious person. Um, you probably don't want to be in my head, because if you are, it means that, for example, when you walk on the beach at Herring Cove, instead of thinking, oh, what a beautiful beach and what a wonderful sunset, you start to think, there are a lot of pebbles on the beach. What if I had to clear them all up? <laughs> and what if I had to order them? Sedimentary rock, igneous rock, metamorphic rock. So you can tell that I, I do worry a little, but most of the worrying I do, most of the worrying I do is health-related worrying. So as you can see, I wear glasses, I'm very short-sighted. Um, that means I'm at risk of having a retinal tear. And I know this. <laughs> I know this because many uh, uh, 
opticians, ophthalmic surgeons have told me about this. And so I know that when I start to see symptoms, floaters in my eyes, I have 24 hours to get to a physician with a laser machine to fix my retinal tear or I go blind. So that's running, that little loop is running in the back of my mind. Also, I'm a man and like most men, I have two testicles. What I also know is that you have six hours from the onset of a testicular torsion that's the testicle twisting in its core before it atrophies and dies. And then, <laughs> so if you want to avoid that, you have to make sure that you go to the doctor, right? You know, what's unfortunate, of course, is that all sorts of stomach cramps and indigestion and other things might feel a bit like that. So perhaps this is um, in my mind more than it should be. But <laughs> one of the other things that I worry a lot about, and you'll see this is coming, I'm coming back towards the rash, um, one of the things I think about a lot and worry about are ticks and Lyme disease, right? So I took my daughter to a school camp, um, and I remember the teacher saying to the kids as they were all sitting around in a circle in the middle of the woods of central Pennsylvania, she says, what's in these woods? And the little boy says, squirrels. And the little girl says, badgers. And somebody else says, um, raccoons or whatever. And, and I want to go, deer, deer. And then what I want to say is, and ticks, deer ticks. But anyway, I don't get asked um, what's in the woods. <laughs> I'm not allowed to play that particular game. And then the teacher summons the children into the woods where they rumble and tumble and tumble. And um, she's not mentioned ticks at all. That night, we're all sleeping over in these you know, wood cabins with our children at the camp. And your know, children are snoring and children are falling out of bed. And all of a sudden, my daughter, who's in the bunk above me, says, Daddy, I think I have a tick. And anyway, we went outside, and sure enough, there was a tick there, and um, a very good school teacher removed the tick. But the reason why I tell you this is because, therefore, ticks and Lyme disease are in my head. So when I develop a rash on, the center, on my chest here, I'm thinking, did I get bitten by a tick? So I'm showing it to my daughter, you know, Miranda, Miranda, look, Daddy, look at Daddy's chest. You know, is, 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 it a, is it a bullseye? Is it a bullseye? And it's an interesting pattern, but it's definitely not a bullseye. And, and she says, Daddy, you're such a warrior. Um, no, it's not a bullseye. It's not, anyway, so, so I'm slightly reassured by my daughter, but, but not entirely. And I'm thinking, OK, so maybe it isn't a tick bite. Maybe it isn't a tick bite. So I start to go through my mental Rolodex of all the other possible <laughs> causes of a rash. And I have, you know, I'm the son of a doctor, so I have quite a good mental Rolodex. And the next thing that strikes me is bed bugs, right? Because I travel a lot, and bed bugs are a real problem. In fact, I'm staying at the Harbor Hotel in Provincetown right now, and I just heard somebody say there was an inspector looking for bed bugs. So as you could see, as you could imagine, I very nervously asked the people at the front desk if there had been an outbreak of bed bugs at the hotel. Anyway, he assured me there wasn't. But back to two years ago, I'm thinking about bed bugs. So I call out the inspector. And it, of course, if we'd had bed bugs, surely some other people in my house might also have had rashes, like my wife or my daughter, but nobody else had rashes. And anyway, the bed bug guy comes out and he inspects the, bed, the whole house for bed bugs, and he says, it's absolutely fine. There are no bed bugs. <laughs> so I've now eliminated all possible causes in my mental Rolodex, and I finally go to the doctor. 
And I sit in the chair and I start to describe the rash to the doctor. And before I can finish my first sentence, I just tell her where it, she says to me, you have shingles. And sure enough, when I took off my t-shirt, she confirmed that I had shingles. And the reason why I had shingles is not just that I had chicken pox as a child, but that I'm a worrier. <laughs> and when you worry, you get shingles. So the thing that I learned from this experience, from this rash, is the things you worry about aren't the things that get you. Usually it's the things you don't worry about that get you. Or in my case, it's the worrying that gets you. Yeah. Next up is Jeannie Gagne. Well, my itch is a travel story that happened right after I graduated college a long time ago. My boyfriend um, agreed at the last minute to travel with me to Europe. And I was really excited. And we did what you do after college. We got year rail passes and we got really big backpacks. And um, we got a cheap flight from New York to Paris. And things were going pretty well. You know, we were staying in youth hostels a little bit and then staying cheap hotels a little bit and traveling from Paris, then we went through Italy, and we went into Switzerland, and taking all these trains, we got to find out that some countries' trains run a little better than others. And in Italy, it turns out they travel on Italy time, so, um, which is slower, <laughs> and later. So I had a friend in the south of Italy, and we took the train down to the south of Italy, and then we had tickets on the other end, the other coast of Italy, to catch the boat out of Brindisi to go across to Greece. And I had some family in Greece. So it was very, very important that we make that boat trip because we had gotten those reservations six weeks before or something. And it was really, it was summer and it was crowded. So we had a wonderful time with my friend in the south of Italy, in Catanzaro, Italy. And we knew we had to pull ourselves away to give ourselves, you know, like 10 hours extra Italy time to make this four-hour train ride. No problem at all. And I'm getting to the itch part, so, okay. So we get on the train, and so far so good. And my sweetheart at the time is a kind of a little bit of a nervous guy and was like, we got to go now. We're in, you know, we're okay. We, we got on the train. We've got 10 hours to get there. Everything will be fine. And I'm starting to get a little, you know, stressed and you can feel it on your skin, but everything is fine. The train's going along and then it stops. Okay. It's not a problem. And, and it stops and it's still sitting on the tracks and we don't know where we are. We're in the middle of fields and there's like crows and so on. And, <laughs> you know, people smoking on the train and stuff, you know, and so we just waited and two hours later we still hadn't moved. Now my skin, this is where the itch <laughs> goes into the story, is starting to get that prickle feeling like, oh no. So the train starts to move and then it lurches and it goes backwards. <laughs> and it's very slowly 
making its way back to the last station. <laughs> now my sweetheart is really starting to freak out right now. <laughs> He's asking everybody, you know, pulling out the Italian book, oh my God, what are we gonna do? We have to make this ferry, what are we gonna do? And so the train eventually takes about an hour creeping its way backwards, you know, and it gets to the station and everybody gets off the train and we're supposed to all catch a bus <laughs> to get to Brindisi to catch the ferry. Okay, not a problem. We still had, you know, four hours and it's about an hour bus ride at this point. So we waited about an hour. One bus came. I am actually starting to acquire his itchy is freaking out at this point too, because as you can imagine, an entire train road, of, uh, road, train load of people is trying to get on this one bus, and people are madly pushing. It's I'm from New York City, and it was worse than the subway. You know, they're just trying to get on. And he takes our packs and goes around to the back because you're supposed to load the stuff. And then I get on the, the bus and, he, and they won't let him on. They shut the door. They said, no. I said, my husband, my husband, you have to let him in. I'm freaking out. So he gets on the bus. We're standing up the whole ride. We get to the next stop. We have to get off and we're still a distance away from Brindisi because the bus won't go anymore. Now we're looking for a cab. <laughs> We still can do this. We still have 45 minutes <laughs> to get to Brindisi before the ferry leaves. So we made arrangements with another couple and we got in the cab together and we're trying to tell the cab driver, I got the phrase book out again, we need to get there fast. And he's like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then we're like, fast, fast, fast. And all of a sudden, <laughs> And it takes off, and the guy, we're on the highway, and he's starting to honk at everything. I mean, there's nothing, there's a bush, and he's honking at the bush. And it's going down, and then we hit to Brindisi. We made it to Brindisi, and he starts, honest to God, going the wrong way down one-way streets to get us to the ferry. You know, it's like this scene in the movie. The punchline is, we get to the ferry, we go through customs, we get on the ferry, and it left four hours late. And our next storyteller tonight is Larry. Hey, I got two little stories, we'll combine them. One's a real itch, one's a metaphorical itch. We'll start with the real itch. So I make my bread by painting. And I'm out in this cattle ranch in Northern California, 51,000 acres. And I get a pickup truck, and I'm wearing my plaid shirt and my jeans and my boots. And I'm out doing my first painting of this whole big experience. I'm gonna be there for a month. And this cowgirl comes by. She's wearing a leather spats and the whole thing, cowguy hat, she goes like this. She says, how you doing? I said, doing fine. She says, Need anything? I said, nah. She said, sure. Everybody needs toilet paper on the range. I said, nah, I got a roll. I'm okay. I said, but you know, while you're here, I got this thing on my back. You know, it's really sort of bothering me. Would you mind checking? And she says, sure, why not? She says, take your shirt off. Take my shirt off. She says, I see what it is. You got yourself a little bee sting back there. Let me take care of it. And she sticks her lips on my back and she just sucks that bee sting right out. <laughs> so now, now I'm thinking, 
Uh, I don't want to get any more bee stings while I'm out here. I got a whole month ahead of me. So the next day, I decided I'm going to go up into the Green Valley, which is this big 10,000 acre, big valley with cows in the distance and horses and all kinds of stuff. And I'm out there, and I can't decide where I want to pick, but I'm just driving in the fields, and I pick my spot, and I'm just setting up and doing my little pastel. And next thing I know, I have this, and I'm thinking, uh, look what happened yesterday. So <laughs> I was just very, very calm, and I thought very peaceful thoughts, and then one bee called another, and then three more came, and then about 30 were there. And then I see this big, dark swarm coming out of those bee boxes. And I'm like, oh, I didn't see those bee boxes. I wouldn't have set up there. <laughs> so next thing I know, the swarm's all around me. And they're up my ears, and they're in my shirt, and they're under my pants, and they're in my toes, and they're just in my lips. And one goes in my mouth and starts picking at my teeth. And I'm really flipping out. But eventually, they figure out there's nothing terribly interesting here. I could have told them that. And they all fly off. Okay, now for the metaphorical story. <laughs> so let's like dial back like 20 years. And now I'm in college. And, <laughs> and during my tenure in college, I don't know if anybody's my age out there, but at 18, you could drink. And I didn't really like beer, but a friend of mine taught me what you do is no one likes beer. You just tip your head back and it all goes in and you just keep doing that until you're ready. So I was at the bar or whatever it is, Campus Center South, and I was just drinking my beer and I saw this girl dancing on the dance floor. And I was with my friend Neil and I said to Neil, see that girl over there? He said, which one? I said, the one with the pigtails and the gray pants. And he said, yeah, I see her. I said, I think I'm gonna marry her. And he's like, who is she? I said, I haven't had a clue. But I went out and danced with her, and five years later, we got married. End of my story. And joining us tonight is Colette Sweetnicki. Well, first I have to say that um, the, the, the story is a little bit of an elaboration from the theme. It's kind of far away, but since we seem to be on health issues tonight, um, I've been a midwife in the Bronx for many years, and so this is one of my midwifery stories. <laughs> and I do want to say, Mimi, we do use vaginal uh, garlic all the time, and it works. Really? And uh, <laughs> we, we think that the main reason it works is nobody will come near you, so you decrease the <laughs> <laughs> so I work in a hospital in the Bronx, and this particular rotation I was on with two students, two new midwifery students, who uh, were learning the labor floor, how to manage and how to do births. And um, the procedure is in the morning you go to the board and you get a report on all the women who came in during the night and um, what their story is and where they are. So as we're standing on the board with my two students, we get a report on room five, which is a 15-year-old African mother, married, uh, who came in in kind of early active labor during the night, but doesn't seem to have been doing much. And uh, it was reported that she's actually just been in the bed, not talking to anybody, although she, did, she does speak English. Uh, and they were thinking that maybe they 
need to start intervening uh, to get things moving. So we decided we'd take her, and um, myself and Sarah, my student, we went in the room, <clears throat> and it's a big room, and the patient, Sabe, is laying in the bed in sort of fetal position, and in the corner uh, is a gentleman, and he's got a book, and he's reading, and as it turns out, um, Sabe is Muslim, so in order to come into a public space, she has to be accompanied by a man, and her husband was out of the country, so her brother-in-law accompanied her to the hospital. So we go up to her and we give the rap, you know, hi, Sabe, my name is Colette, and this is my student, Sarah, and blah, 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 blah. And Sabe doesn't move. She's there in fetal position and nothing is happening. So I, I say it again like a little softer and you know a little more like breathing heavier and and, and, and Sabi doesn't do anything. She just stays there. So I indicated to the student, let's, let's go outside. So we go outside and I said, well, oh, we got to do something. What, what, what are we going to do with this kid? I mean, you know. So the student said, I don't, I don't know, uh, but you know, I know a few words in Swahili. I said, you know a few words in Swahili? <laughs> she said, yeah, my aunt was a missionary, you know? And I said, well, what do the words mean? She said, I'm not really sure, but it's something like welcome. I think it's like, like welcome, you know? So I said, well, you, you know, maybe let's try it. Let's try it. So we go back, we, we go back in the room and we, we approach, you know, in a, in a softer tone. And I said, Sabe, you know, sweet, you know, we, we're, we really want to help you. You know, we, but we don't know what you need, Sabe. You know, we, we're here, but it, it's hard. We, we don't know how to go about this. And I, I said to Sarah, so, Sarah comes a little bit closer, and Sarah does her three words. And Sabi doesn't move. She's still there looking down there. And I said, Sarah, louder, louder. So Sarah comes a little bit closer, and she says her three words. And Sabi turns her head, and she looks up, and she looks right at Sarah, who's a young 22-year-old, and she gets out of the bed, and she goes over to Sarah, and she puts her hands around her neck and hangs off <laughs> And she cries out, Mommy! Mommy! <laughs> it, was, it was blood curdling, right? So we get off the bed, and we take her hand, and grab her robe, and we walk her to the door, and we start walking up and down the hospital corridors. And they went round and round. And I said to Sarah, let me know when you need a break. She keeps going. And she wouldn't eat anything, but she drank. And then when it was close and we could hear that maybe the baby was about to come, we put Sabe back in the bed and we looked and the baby was coming and Sabe 
with tears in her eyes, looked up at Sarah. She delivered this little baby girl, her first delivery, and Sarah, with tears in her eyes, her first delivery, said her three Swahili words, welcome. So, you know, sometimes you have an itch, but you don't exactly know where it is. You can't, you, you tell your partner a little to the right, a little up to the left, right? You can't really localize it. But fear sometimes is like that. You can't really focus where it is, where it's coming from. But if you can take the time to try and find out, what a relief. <laughs> and our final storyteller this evening is Sue Richman. It was a little late on a school night when I got the message. Abigail would like to have a play date with your daughter Addie tomorrow, but our place is kind of a mess, so can it be at your house? <laughs> uh, what's this like? Kind of out of the blue? I don't even know these people. What's going on at their house? Are they moving? Are they painting? And I was imagining all these boxes, like tripping over stuff. And then it dawned on me they have bed bugs. And then my next thought was Jesus, did we give them to them? I had spent the last several months feeling dirty and contaminated and even worse, guilty that we had maybe unwittingly, single-handedly been the sole uh, uh, ground zero for the resurgence of bed bugs in New York City. <laughs> the next day at school, Abigail came in and she put her jacket right next to Addie's jacket. I'm like, ah, oh, they share a cubby. And then I thought about what I had learned in my hundreds of hours of surfing on bedbugger.com about bed bugs and how they stay with their host, but then they migrate. And I thought this bed bug was going from her pocket to her lunch bag to her backpack, and then to Addie's backpack, and then back and forth. And then I looked at Abigail's arms textbook, whereas my daughter's had tiny little microscopic pin pricks that I would investigate their arms and necks for some kind of confirmation of our infestation. Abigail, she was a shower. 50% of the population reacts badly. She had that telltale three-bite formation. The first bite is a little scouting expedition. The second bite, they excrete this numbing agent. And the third bite, well, they call it breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> Abigail's mother came over to me, so we'll take her for after school? And I caved. Sure, I said, maybe I can pump her for some information. And in the playground, Abigail fessed up to everything. We have them so bad, she said. <laughs> they obviously had not been sworn to secrecy like my kids had. <laughs> and then I started thinking, okay, there's a million students in the New York public school system. <laughs> there are at least that many teachers and administrators. And in all of my hours of research on the internet, I had not come across a single reference of a Board of Ed protocol for bed bugs. I mean, come on, we have these Hasidic ladies come in every month and they scour the hair of every single child in our school for knits and lice? It's child's play. A louse can live no more than 48 hours without a host. 
A bed bug? 18 months. They can survive. They can survive up to temperatures up to 120 degrees, and they can live through a cold winter. So I decided I was going to take all my information and my theory to the principal of the school. And I set up a meeting with her, and I told her everything about Abigail and Addie and what we had been through with the thousands of dollars of bed bug sniffing dogs and the packing everything, the laundry, and the quarantine that we had been through. And she looked at me, and I could see her calculating the inspectors, the dogs, the pesticides in the schoolrooms, the parents freaking out about the pesticides in the schoolrooms, the thousands of students and backpacks and the 40 years of books and paper. And she slid her chair back and she said, no, there are no bed bugs here. <laughs> and I thought, you know, okay, we spent all this money looking out to the heavens for some sign of life. We like looking for some kind of radio signal. But there are these colonies of life right here in front of us. We are looking in the wrong direction with the wrong instruments. We need not telescopes, we need microscopes. But we could totally eradicate these things, but that would require collective action. And that collective action would require an unflinching and fearless look at a pretty uncomfortable and itchy truth, which is something that humans are not so good at. I mean, we build this rickety scaffolding to protect our fragile existence. We buy lottery tickets. We build cities in the desert. We don't use condoms. Like, we are our own worst enemy. We deny, we deny. And the bed bugs, they thrive on that. <laughs> so later that night, Addie, I, long after I thought she'd gone to bed, I hear this little voice, Mommy, Mommy. And I went in her room, and she's like, Mommy. Dinosaurs came before us, so what comes after us? I'm like, oh, she's got to know. Bed bugs, darling. <laughs> but good night. Sleep tight. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast 2014 summer season. The Mosquito is produced by Tidal Theatre Company, Caitlin Langstaff, and Vanessa Vardabedian, and was sponsored by WOMR 92.1 in Provincetown and WBUR 89.1 in Brewster. You can keep up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast on iTunes. Join us again in 2015 for more Story Slams on the Outer Cape and your chance to bite it live.